This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Great to have you with us. We were marking Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Dr. Nehagami from Health Plus Family Health Centre was telling us why women need to get regularly screened for this disease and what do those words abnormal smear actually mean. Carol Abdo from Hope Habilitation Medical Centre was talking gross motor skills in children, some of the things you might need at home to help them meet those milestones. We met the father and daughter diving duo taking us under the waves in the Maldives and Dr Francesca Podda from the City Vet Clinic and Al Wassel was answering all of your pet-related queries and you were sharing their weird habits and I tell you what, they were quite strange indeed. This month is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Perfect opportunity to shine some light on the fourth most common cancer amongst women globally. An estimated 604,000 new cases and 342,000 deaths in 2020, according to the World Health Organization. So what do we need to know from screening to treatment, vaccines and more? We're here to answer your questions. So do reach out if there's anything that's concerning you. Because joining us now live in the studio is Dr. Neha Gami, specialist obstetrician and gynecologist. She's a Health Plus Family Health Centre to answer all of those questions. Dr. Neha, lovely to have you with us. And um, I think this is such an important, really important topic. Something that I think a lot of people kind of shy away from. Um, It's one of those kind of, I don't want to go for a smear. I find this really uncomfortable to talk about. Never mind, you know, go to see a doctor about. So hopefully we're breaking a bit of stigma and taboo around this Mm -hmm. because, as I said, fourth most common cancer in the world. Now, before we get into symptoms and screening. I was wondering if you could explain for us in kind of simple terms, as a gynae, what exactly is the cervix and what's its purpose in the in the female body? Thank you for having me, Helen, and thank you welcome. for picking up this topic. It's such an important topic. I mean, I cannot emphasize more. Um, so f- to start with, the cervix is basically the neck of the womb. So it's the lowermost part of the womb that opens into the vagina. That's the that's the opening where the you know which opens up to deliver the baby, and that's a very very important part of the body, of course. And uh, the only problem is that it's a very rapidly changing part. There's there's a zone there which keeps changing. The cells keep growing. Old ones get shed. New ones get put on and that's why it's a very common site for cancer to start because it's quite dynamic it's dynamic exactly so with this kind of cell renewal that means presumably that we as women need to be pretty well on it when it comes to screenings because presumably things can change quite quickly exactly and that is why it is recommended that at least every three years women should go for screenings uh, because things can change i think three years is quite a long time (laughs) The thing is that the it takes time for these changes to happen. Okay. So yes, if you go more frequently, you're likely to pick up a lot of things, but our body has the ability to heal them as well. So if you go too often, you might pick up some little changes which mm-hmm. the body may anyways, you know, be able to fix and go back to normal. So you'll just be doing unnecessary treatments if you go too often also. That's of course, there are certain women who do need more often screenings if they're immunocompromised, if they have some symptoms, if they've had history of abnormal smears, then we'll do it more often but not for everyone. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but in the UK, we had something called the Jade Goody factor. She was a reality TV star who tragically passed away um, of cancer. And after that death, we saw a huge spike of awareness in especially a younger community of women who thought that 
cervical cancer was something that happened to you know their mum's generation and it feels like that's almost kind of worn off now you know that 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 awareness has has gone down and, and i and i wondered if that was something that you've noticed because where i'm you know where i'm from in the uk i'd be getting a letter through my door you know every couple of years saying it's time to come in for your smear helen and you couldn't really ignore that letter whereas here you know the onus is on us as patients to be coming in for treatment Yes, absolutely. So, you know, public health memory is very, very short and people tend to forget these things. And that's the role that you and I have to keep reminding them that, no, you cannot forget something as important as this and you have to go for your checkups. So, you know, when you go for your annual checkups, you'll be told when your next one is due, we'll be reminded. And then you just put it in your calendar and go back for it. I have a friend that does it um, the week before her birthday, so she never forgets. That's a very good trick. (laughs) Link it to an important event in your life and you'll remember to do it. So can we talk then, I guess, about at-risk demographics? What age groups, even nationalities of women, are we seeing higher than, uh, than average rates of cervical cancer? So it's the higher rates are usually seen in countries where we don't have access to healthcare, where we don't have pap smears. It's not more than ethnicity of the women, it's more where they are located. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thankfully in the UAE, we have amazing access to healthcare and we can all get our pap smears done. It's all covered with insurance. So we don't have to worry about anything. Just go to your gynecologist and get it done today. But uh, yeah, the age group most commonly seen is between 35 and 44, where you actually see the cancer cases. But having said that, Cancer changes start in the cervix 10 to 15 years before cancer starts. And that's the window we want to catch. Mm -hmm. We don't want to catch you when you've had the cancer, right? We want to pick it up when it's very, very early. Simple treatments can reverse it, nip it in the bud and not let it become a cancer. So start at 25 and get it done every three years. Dr. Nehagami with us this afternoon. She's a specialist obstetrician gynecologist from Health Plus. Um, I wanted to ask you about those dreaded words abnormal pap smear result, which I think most women today will have had at some point in their life. And as you alluded to earlier, you know, the cervix is a dynamic thing. There's lots of cell cellular changes happening there. So if you do get that notification from your doctor, what next? Does it mean you've got cancer? Well, the first thing is it means you don't have cancer. You have precancerous cells, which means that you have a window of 10 to 15 years to fix that problem so that you never get cancer. In fact, what I tell most of my patients is this is good news. You've got it here and now you'll never get cancer because I'm going to make sure that you get the right treatment and it doesn't become anything like a cancer. So there's there's many ranges of abnormal smears. Majority of them are low grade or early changes, which we can fix with simple treatment, some lifestyle changes or smoking is linked to these changes. So if you can reduce that you know, general health, immunity. And if you can work on that, then a lot of these changes, the body can fix itself. Slightly higher grade changes, we can help you fix with some minor treatments, which will not affect your future childbearing, which will not affect your pregnancy chances. And it will be like just something that you will need a follow up for like a, once a year. When you say treatments, I'm sorry, I just want to kind of demystify that. Yes. So let's talk low grade. If, if, you, if your doctor's saying, do you know what? It's very early. It's precancerous. We just need to do. What would that be? So it you could be managed with just freezing those cells. So you just freeze those cells, the abnormal cells shed off, and then healthy cells grow from within. And then you're fine. You know, you go back to being normal and just an annual pap smear. And then if it's a higher grade change, then we might have to shave off a little bit. But that's also very few millimeters of the cervix we're talking about. So it won't affect your future health at all. And most women will just go back to being normal within six months. Um, so cervical cancer impact childbearing if you do have a diagnosis, if, if, it, if that's what it is. Does it, it doesn't necessarily affect your fertility, but could it affect your ability to carry and deliver a baby? 
So again, it depends at what stage we've picked it up. Uh, and um, so if it's still at an early stage, there's something known as a partial removal of the cervix. It's called trachelectomy in scientific terms. And if we do that, then you can still carry a baby to term. We'll help you with a stitch maybe to hold the cervix closed, depending on you know what the situation is. But it is still possible. So I wouldn't give up hope. And I would say that, you know, just speak to your doctor and we'll find that. And that's why the screening tests are so important mm-hmm. to pick it up at the earliest. Now, prevention is often better than uh, better than cure. So let's talk about the HPV vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit about who it's aimed at and the efficacy as well? Yeah. So the vaccine has really been a game changer for this disease because um, it, cervical cancer is primarily caused by an HPV infection, which is a virus, human papilloma virus. Now, if we are able to give the vaccine to kids and girls before they've been sexually active, then that will ensure that when they get exposed to the virus, it doesn't come and take a home inside their cervix. Okay. So that will prevent the cancer in those girls. And it's it's like a more than 84 to 86% efficacy in preventing cervical cancer. Some changes might still come up in your pap smears as you go along. So you still do your pap smears, but it will not let it turn into a cancer. So that's the beauty of it. So it's available here in the UAE. Yes. Now, in other parts of the world, um, it's really, you know, boys are having it as well. It's opt-in for boys, but we're really talking about young women this afternoon. Um, what age group would you then recommend? So it's recommended for 11 to 15-year-old girls. It can be given as early as nine years as well. And in fact, the UAE National Program is giving to around 13 to 14-year-olds in school these days. So it's a free vaccine given to girls, just two doses, six months apart. And, you know, your girls will get it in school. And if you want to take your boys, you can take them to a clinic and get that done as well. Same age, just two doses. And uh, presumably this is something that parents need to be signing off on, not just going to be randomly injecting children at school. Um, So we need to get parental buy-in here. Um, It's a relatively new vaccine. Um, Have you placed any kind of objections or or attitudes around it from parents that we could perhaps be addressing today? The only concern I feel is that a lot of parents feel that our children are not going to be sexually active so soon. So why do we need to give it to them now? It's because their immunity is most susceptible to a response to the vaccine at that age. So it's not linked to when they'll be active, but it's Mm -hmm. more about protecting them way before that happens, because even one exposure could could expose them to the virus. So... And then for women as we get older, you know, was it worth getting the vaccine when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, or is it very much aimed at that younger age group? So there was an extension of the age group to 26 years of age where it was found that there was some benefit. But after that, especially if you're in a relationship and you already have been exposed it doesn't really offer you much benefit. No harm, but no benefit as well. Dr. Neha with us this afternoon. I wanted to come back to cervical cancer. As we said, the fourth most common cancer amongst women globally. Um, can we talk about treatment of that? And if it, you know, it is identified at a later age, stage rather, um, what can treatment look like? So the main treatment is hysterectomy, which is basically removal of the womb. So that is if it's in still in early stages, but sometimes it spreads beyond the cervix itself and goes into the vagina or the local pelvic areas. Then it's only radiotherapy, basically where we give radiation to those areas. And that does help. And a lot of women do respond to that even at that late stage. Can I come back to your point earlier about some lifestyle changes? Mm-hmm. If you do get that, um, you know, abnormal smear um, kind of notification um if we're talking about as you say freezing a few cells you know very straightforward kind of you know it, you know outpatient procedure um what other lifestyle factors could women be doing trying adjusting in order to just have a very good health in that part of their body 
So even before that, actually, you know, smoking, like I said, has been a major link to this cancer because it reduces your local immunity as well. Um, having multiple partners, not using protection, that exposes you to more chances of HPV infection. More than 80% of adults these days are, have the HPV virus. It's just that, you know, you don't want it to cause cancer. Mm -hmm. So that's why you should protect yourself. Working on your general immunity, having lots of fruits, vegetables, uh, keeping the vaginal health, you know, uh, very uh, an optimum. So to like, you know, looking after that. And and I guess that that's mainly about it. And of course, immunocompromised conditions, if you have any other medical conditions, then that will predispose you to this. And lastly, I guess a bit of demystification about the, the pap smear. For anyone that hasn't had one, and I think a lot of women put it off out of fear because, you know, you hear stories and my goodness, I think things have changed an awful lot since many of us had our first one, you know, a yes. few decades ago, <laughs> that, that metal thing that looked like a duck um tell it can you you know and i'm really thinking about any mums listening today who might want to talk to their daughters about what we will need to do when you're a teen and you know and, and going through in, into being a young woman you're very right it's changed a lot and it's very very simple and it's painless now i mean if you you know it's a small plastic tube that's put inside you just take a quick look at the cervix take a brush from that we used to have wooden spatulas back in the days we have now just a very gentle brush we'll just touch your cervix get some cells off it and that's it and you're done it's like less than a 30 second procedure it may be uncomfortable for no, some listen, but it's not no one painful. loves it yeah I, I know nobody does no one loves it but but this is but it's all part of being a woman um, and it's important and it is important and much like we raise awareness around breast cancer in october and again no one loves going in for a mammogram but my goodness if you get past the embarrassment and you've got a lovely doctor like you who has you know seen it all talked about it you know it is your it's your day to day there's no embarrassment on your side it's just yeah. Just get it booked, get it done, tick it off the to-do list, know that you've done what you can do and you're controlling what you can control. And then you've got good support to anything else happen. Thank you so much for your time there. Welcome. Thank really you so do, much, Helen. Really do appreciate it. One very last question. Yes. It's just come in the text line saying, do all schools give the HPV vaccine? Yes, all schools across Dubai and Abu Dhabi now, in fact, all Northern Emirates are giving the HPV vaccine from 2019, Northern Emirates also, and Abu Dhabi has been giving it from 2013. There you go. Just so. just need to be getting your buy-in to protect those kids. Thank you so much, Dr. Nehat, joining us there from Health Plus Family Health Centre. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We are bringing in the experts into the studio today and we're talking about gross motor skills in children. These are the abilities that are used to control the muscles in the body, the crawling, walking, jumping and more. So if you've got any questions, maybe if you're noticing something up with your little one that's bothering you, maybe they're not hitting a milestone that you've got in mind. Get in touch now. Joining us live for this clinic is psychomotor therapist from Hope Habilitation Medical Centre. Carol Abdo is with us. Carol, thank you so much for being here. Because I feel like this topic is it's quite a tricky one for a lot of parents because we worry. We worry about everything and we compare endlessly to kids around, to what parents are saying. And I'd love it if you wouldn't mind just by starting to explain what exactly gross motor skills are. What is, it, what is it that you're concerned about and helping with? Okay, so thank you for having me. I'm going to start by giving you a little brief about the profession. So the psychomotor therapy is a healthcare profession that is being uh, practiced on, uh, in the UAE under the DHA. So it's based on a holistic view of a person and it addresses individuals of all ages. 
So uh, it targets the treatment of different disorder. It can be developmental, neurological, genetic, and a global approach. So uh, it improved the balance between the body and the mind, mm -hmm. and it aimed to optimize the global development, the academic performance, and the mental and physical well-being. So we work, uh, we can work with baby, with kids, with teenagers, and with elderly. So uh, as a psychomotor therapist, there's many things we work on. So we work on the global motor skills, that is the gross motor skills. The gross motor skills, uh, we talk about the dynamic coordination, with, which is the walking, the running, the jumping, the climbing, all of the coordination in the body. We talk about static coordination, which is it is the coordination without moving, for example, being able uh, to stand still on the surface for how many seconds, being able to hold uh, one leg up and maintaining balance. We talk uh, also about the eye-hand coordinations, for example, the ability uh, to throw, to catch a ball, the ability to aim into a target. All of this is under the gross motor skills, and all of this is depending on the normal uh, developmental age of the child. It's so hard, isn't it, that word normal, because it's such a range, yes, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's really, really tricky. And I wanted to ask you, Carol, because we've got so many messages already about children, and more like toddlers, actually. Yes. Um, so I wondered, when it comes to families coming to you, what are some of the common questions or concerns that you're yeah. getting into clinic? So uh, we get a lot of questions uh, that the parents come for psychomotor therapy when their child doesn't meet the milestones of his ages. For example, if we talk about a normal development, a child at, for example, four months old should, should be able to hold his head and his neck properly. At six months old, he would, she or he would be able to uh, sit in a proper position without assistance. At 10 or 11 months, he will start to get up and to walk with assistant. At 12 to 15 months, he should be walking alone. So if after a one year and a half, the child is not able to walk alone, uh, he can come for psychomotor therapy. We get a lot of uh, the kids, especially in schools, that are mm -hmm. having problem with holding the pencil, uh, not being able to write properly. Uh, we have a lot that come also for lack of concentration and attention at school. How is that linked then to psychomotor? Yeah, okay. like how so the body's I, working. Yes, I will tell you a little bit about what we work on. That way you will understand more of the domains we work on. So the more important thing in psychomotor therapy is the body because it's psycho and motor. So it's everything related to cognitive skills in relationship with our body and mind connection. Okay, so first of all, we work a lot on the body perception, on the uh, body image, on the perception, organization of the body in space. We work on the laterality, okay, and the hand dominance. It means being able to choose one side of the body, which be the preference side. Uh, we work on the time and space knowledge, uh, like acquiring the time and space concept according to the age, on, under, behind, mm -hmm. in front, and the time, the days of the week, the year, everything. Uh, we work also on the cognitive skills, which are the attention, the planification, the concentration, and the visual memory. So much comes under this. Yes. We also work on fine motor skills, so 
the manual dexterity, the speed, the precision, being able to oppose the fingers, to hold the pencil properly, all of this. And we also uh, work on the handwriting, so uh, the proper way to form the letters, the speed, the quality of writing. We don't work on uh, the sounds and everything the speech therapist does, but if we have a problem in the motor um, the motor movement mm -hmm. of the letter or the handwriting, it's not clear, it's disorganized, uh, the child doesn't know uh, where to start from the page, uh, Oh, we also work on this. So it's uh, well, all... Uh, expect to be busy between yes. now and three <laughs> o'clock, Carol. Already lots of messages coming in. If any of those issues are bringing something to mind for you, raising any red flags, do reach out. Absolutely fascinating to think about everything from handwriting and concentration to lateral movement, hitting those milestones. And Carol, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I say this as a parent, and certainly with my first one, I was so big on racing towards those milestones. Oh, she she should be crawling now. She should be walking now. By the second one, I was like, let's not hurry this. Third one. <laughs> and there's no third one. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Um, but I think we worry a lot as parents. And um, we look around and we, you know, we go to these, you know, meetups and we see a child whizzing off crawling and you know we, we worry that we're our child isn't hitting those milestones so I guess I have two questions for you on that one is what can cause a delay to a milestone especially in that baby going into toddler what have, what have you seen when it comes to causation okay so first of all it's really important to know a little bit about the history of the pregnancy and if there is there any complication because that affects uh, the baby. So uh, we ask a lot about how was the pregnancy, how was the delivery, if, if it was premature, if it has complication, because because it impacts uh, the the baby. So, for example, uh, if a baby is premature, uh, he is usually having more trouble like reaching the milestones than normal children. Does that tend to correct itself as that child gets older or will that delay always be in place to some no, extent? No, it can be, it can like uh, be back to normal. Sometimes uh, we need the help of a therapist and sometimes is it, it's in the normal range so we just like give a little bit of stimulation. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes when... Uh, um, when there's in the family a history of some complication or uh, um, a disorder, it can be also like genetically uh, be with the next baby. Mm -hmm. uh, also, like if the parents are... Um, uh, uh, in the family like cousins or something we know that it can also affect the baby like having baby after 40 years also can like uh, enhance the the chance of having like disorders and sometimes it's just a lack of stimulation at home so for example especially in the covid time when the when child was not the parents were not able to take their babies outside to play uh, to have experiences sensory motor experiences mm -hmm. so uh, we got a lot of these uh, children that were like a little bit um, reserved or a little bit shy of or a little bit afraid of motor activities because it's a little bit a lack of stimulation yeah, and had, experience. Hadn't, hadn't been exposed and socialized in, in the exactly, way that you might normally expect. Exactly. And nurseries were closed, school were closed. So all of these factors can impact or can delay uh, normal motor development. We're talking um, we're like, and we can have also like 
um, a problem in delivery, for example, uh, if the baby uh, was not having enough oxygen or something. We're talking now about something more... Uh, more medical. Yes, like cerebral palsy yeah. of uh, something else. Okay. Carol's with us. We've stolen her away from clinic um, to answer my questions, but honestly, most importantly, yours. So if you do have any concerns about milestones, development, motor skills, this is your chance. You don't need to get a referral. You don't need to make an appointment. You just need to get in touch on 4001. You don't even need to put your name on it. Gina has been in touch saying, Hi both, my son is 12 months old and has a gross motor delay. He can't get into a sitting position on his own, although sits unsupported easily. He doesn't pull up or cruise, but can stand for ages if you hold his hands. He can't crawl or roll from his front to his back. There's apparently nothing physically wrong with him. And in all other areas, he's great. He is 99th percentile for height and weight. And in uh, 18 months to 24 months close, that might not be helping. Is there anything we can do at home? Good question. How, how can we help Gina okay, and her little so, boy? Um, so his 12 months and he is able to, uh, he to can stand still, but not alone. And he's not able to sit after this. So he's not able to walk yet. Correct. Okay. So um, I would suggest at home that we uh, put some object near him that he can walk a little bit with assistant or, or uh, put a box or a sofa or something he can just stand on and uh, let him play with something on top like Lego or any game he likes and uh, a little bit increase the time. For example, we start with two minutes, then five minutes. And uh, of course, the parents should be around him. Uh, it can be like uh, a fear of falling. It could be like a lack of stimulation. Uh, but if uh, everything is normal, the muscles is, are normal, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, his body, he should be able to achieve it like in time. in time, but we should uh, stimulate more at home, okay? And the rolling, we should also perform the rolling at home. And How do you perform the rolling? Okay, so for <laughs> rolling, uh, it's better like to seek a therapist, okay? Because uh, we work with the motor development of the child. So we will perform ro rolling. We will give tips to the parents at home. We'll after perform the seating position, the crawling, and then like to from crawling to uh, getting up and then to walking. So with this child, I feel that there's some uh, some of them that are missing. Some and gaps, sometimes yeah. we tend as parents not to allow the child to have the transition. So mm -hmm. for example, if uh, He's on his tummy and we want him to sit. We will just take him and make him sit. So he will not learn how to go from this posi position to that position. So we should, for example, put a mat or a foam under him and just leave him uh, experience first this kind of position. Put toys around him, toys that make sound, that make uh, noise or that he's interesting in and uh, let him reach them. If like the it persists, it's better to seek a therapist, a physiotherapist or a psychomotor. We've got Carol with us this afternoon. She is a psychotherapist joining us from Hope Habilitation. As I said earlier, I think a lot of parents kind of race through the milestones. You know, we're really keen to have our kid to be the fastest, the, you know, the, the most advanced. Um, and sometimes our kids actually skip stages. Mm. I've known, known kids that have gone from, you know, sitting and rolling, skipping, crawling all together and they're up and they're cruising. Um, and to my understanding, and I'd love to get your take on this, this can be not detrimental as such, but it can miss out a crucial stage 
stage in their development that might impact them down the line. If we're talking about skipping, crawling, mm. for example, and that kind of you know, transverse movement, yes. arms and legs, um, what do you see coming into clinic in that respect? Okay. So there's a lot of kids that skip crawling and they uh, stand and walk without uh, the stage. So if they are w- uh, walking fine, running, uh, doing all the other gross motor skills without any difficulties, then it's fine. Cool. Crawling is like um, a stage to um, help them acquire or help them uh, achieve the next step. But if the child didn't require the step, it's okay. But if we have like a case when uh, we see that before crawling, the stages are stages are not being well acquired we usually work on um, uh, on his development okay we see what is he able to do now and if if there's something missing then we will enhance enhance the crawling position and then like the standing and then the walking but if he's able to uh, do everything and he's now walking so it's totally fine okay Thank you for that. Let's go to the text line. You can send your questions in for Carol on 4001. Um, no name on this one, and you can be completely anonymous. doesn't matter a bit. Um, anonymous message saying, my son is four. He has a preliminary diagnosis of high-functioning ASD from a paediatrician. His official assessment's in a couple of weeks. Nursery flag last year, he seemed behind his peers physically, falling frequently and in the manner of a young toddler, walking with a puppet-like gait, often sliding off his chair by accident, that sort of thing. He definitely gets more clumsy when he's stressed and anxious or generally emotionally insecure in a situation. Is there a link? Thank you. Yes. So, of course, if there is a diagnosis from a pediatrician, uh, we know that uh, kids like suffering from autism, they can have like uh, uh, problems with communication, um, behavior, and sometimes uh, being in a classroom with other children uh, can impact or can uh, make him feel a little bit more tense or a little bit angry. So we usually see this kind of behavior. So it's really important like to um, if they are concerned to seek for example uh, a specialist or a therapist to work on uh, the behavior to work on setting routines setting limits in the session uh, to work to a little bit accept other kids to be able to share to give to take uh, toys and what about the physical side is there anything that this family could be doing at home um, to I guess to kind of bolster that that physical side uh, you also with children with autism, usually we see like the walking is a little bit um, like kind of weird or some of them, they walk on their tiptoes and we see a little bit of movement that are like a little bit out, out of the normal. So it's important like not to tell him or to tell him, no, you should not walk like this or it's wrong or something like this. We can uh, a little bit incorporate gross motor activities at home where he has uh, he have to step on surfaces where he has to uh, feel his feet perception, for example, with paint, with water activity. Water can help a lot also to um, feel and to accept the body. And if it persist it's better like to uh, seek Mm -hmm. a specialist 
Keep us posted on this, no name. Um, I want to come to fine motor skills, if yes. you don't mind. This is from Emma saying, Hi both, our five-year-old son is behind with his fine motor skills. I can't get him to do the usual things to help him. Play-Doh, Lego, he just asked me to make things from the Play-Doh um, and wants to use the Lego little people in games rather than build anything. He won't draw or colour, just not interested. Have you got any other ideas that might interest him? He's generally fairly uncoordinated, so I think it's something he struggles with and that puts him off. Yes. So, of course, when the child recognizes that something is difficult, he will usually uh, avoid, like, it. avoid it. Human nature, I, I'm the same. Yes. So, uh, with this, we should like start with something that is a little bit easy. So, for example, Lego for him can be challenging, especially if it's little pieces. Uh, and Play-Doh as well. If the Play-Doh is hard, it could be challenging. So, uh, for example, we can start by um, getting, for example, sponges. Okay, from the kitchen and we don't have to use uh, a lot of fancy stuff. For example, sponges, put them in water, then squeeze them. Uh, for example, getting a Play-Doh, but like Play-Doh for the kids that are very soft, very colorful. Some of them uh, have even smells oh, and the slime. There's a lovely glitter company. And oh, there's some like, brilliant ones. One, yes. Oh my goodness, what's it called? Neuro-Dough. Yes, absolutely make, gorgeous, and they do like natural scents, and they can add things. So there is and also the sand, uh, the sand dough. Uh, even we can make something fun out of it. Make a pizza, like for example, kind of rolling needing, using yeah. the stencils with. Um, putting flour, putting, I don't know, the cheese with the yellow uh, dough and then tomato with uh, uh, red dough. So a little bit uh, be creative. And each time we sit a little bit with them. So, for example, we start with three minutes and we just we don't leave them like this is the play. -Doh. OK, you will play with it alone. OK, so we have to interact and we play with him. Uh, we can also um, use uh, the threading and the lacing activities. So, for example, we can use the beads like with big holes if the child is uh, young. Uh, we can also use tweezers. Okay, there's special tweezers for kids. There's nice like pom-pom activities. Yes, and pom-pom, uh, we can work on the classification of colors. We can work on the numbers. Uh, we can even uh, place a little bit uh, stickers on their hands, okay, and uh, tell him to remove them or uh, hang them on the wall and then to remove it. We can place coins in a piggy bank. We can um, uh, help mom with folding uh, the clothes, with matching socks, with the clothespins as well at home. So at home we have a lot of activities. So maybe for him, like the Lego and everything that is uh, a little bit uh, more challenging for him is not interesting. Mm -hmm. We can like... Uh, use more fun activities with him at home. You've got so many great ideas. My goodness. I want to ask lastly um, a little bit about when to get a diagnosis. We've had a couple of messages going, should we get help? This is the situation. So we, we do try and kind of stay away from that, you know, normal mm. world. But I guess as a parent, we're all pretty instinctive, I think. You know, we get a feeling if something's not quite right, perhaps with our child, whether that's from you know, just gut instinct or from their siblings. So when would you recommend someone reaching out to an expert such as you? Is it upon, you know, he or she's not doing that or I go to a doctor and I get a referral? When, mm. when should you get in touch? Okay, uh, so... Um, parents a little bit should be concerned and should come seek a psychomotor uh, therapist when uh, 
like we said, the child is not like reaching milestone, motor milestone on age. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if he's having uh, troubles with his fine motor skills, uh, he's not able to hold the pencil, he is not el- able to dress himself, he's having difficulties uh, choosing which is his uh, dominant side of the body. Um, if uh, he has difficulty in uh, writing and his concentration at school, he's clumsy, he bumps into things, he can't concentrate. Uh, all of these, we can help with, with him, but we don't put a diagnosis like um, uh, autism or something else. So if the uh, if the concern is like motor or uh, uh, motor or academic, we seek a psychomotor therapist. If it's for uh, something that is developmental or neurological, genetic, we, sh- we seek a, mm. a, a, a pediatrician. Thank you so much for coming in. I feel like we've only kind of scratched the surface of yes. things that you're an expert on. We've had a couple of questions about handwriting. I'd love to have you and the team in to talk about handwriting because it can be a huge challenge. Yes. And, and my last question, I guess, to you, Carl, is um, is it like many medical situations? Is is prevention or early intervention more accurately important yes of course so early intervention like is key to minimize uh, like um, any potential difficulty or disorder so if we see like the child is having difficulty it's very very important to uh, begin at a young age because as we know like the younger the child is the the more uh, connection in his brain he will make he will absorb everything it's he will be his brain will be like a sponge and it would be easier for him uh, to adapt to the new situation and as we know when we get older for example after seven or eight years old everything will be personalized and the routines and the habit will be very difficult mm-hmm. to change. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to start at an early age. Thank you so much for your time, Carl. really do appreciate it. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We're talking travel now and we first met them back in August last year where they took us on an incredible underwater adventure. Now, father and daughter duo Priyadashi and Tissia are back to tell us about their recent diving trip to the Maldives. Tissia, you have been all over the world and I remember last time you'd reached 70 feet, I believe. How old are you now? I'm 12. 12. Yeah. So you are just absolutely record-breaking adventure girl. So tell us a little bit about where you've been in the past and then we'll talk the Maldives. Where have you been diving? So, um, for in like when I got my license, I only used to dive in Fujera because that's like the best um, reefs in UAE and it's just easier for me because with school and then, you know, not me not finding time, it was just easier for me to do it in the UAE. So I, I've, been, I've just been diving in Fujera and Fujera is actually pretty good for diving. It's like the coral reefs are very good, like they're pretty decent and the current is like not that much so it's easy to dive there what about the wildlife what have you seen under the waves of the uae i've seen a few turtles myself in fajera yeah turtles my favorite are rainbow parrotfish basically like rainbow fishes so they're really cool uh and then you know like um sort of like a variation of clownfish and like bunch of corals like table coral and all of that yeah wow 
Priyadashi, you are a diver yourself and uh, the one responsible for igniting this passion in, in Tithia. Tell us about going to the Maldives. Why, why has that been identified by divers as such an iconic location? Well, uh, Maldives is globally known for its uh, beaches, but I think uh, apart from what we see above the water, uh, underwater beauty is is magical. So two things I would say uh, draw all divers to Maldives are unmatched visibility and uh, the huge amount of marine life underneath the waters. So you have, uh, because of the unique position of Maldives as a lot of islands in various atolls, you have channels uh, between the atolls and the channels have swift currents and currents bring with them nutrients and nutrients bring marine life. So it's a symbiotic relationship which leads to uh, an amazing amount of uh, uh, marine life being available at one place. And, and the colours, the colours, the colours. Tizu, what was it like the first time that you had to, had to dive in the Maldives? What did you see then? So um, it was very different, right? So like in UAE, the visibility is not very good. But here it was like, it was kind of a shock for me because we were going from like, you know, UAE, you have like six, like at best you get like eight meters of visibility. And then like on a bad day in Maldives, it was 20 meters of visibility, (laughs) which was really shocking for me because I've never experienced so much visibility. Like, I could see everything and it was just so nice to just, like, stand there and see everything. I'll interrupt her here uh, uh, because the first dive on 14th of uh, December, within five minutes, we see our first black tip reef shark. (gasps) Yeah, and there was, like, also a stingray, like a massive stingray, just like started going over us. So that was really cool because like it was kind of like giving us shade. It was really cool. And then we saw it and it was just like only five minutes. Then all of the commotion happened. We yeah. saw a shark. Then we saw like a stingray. And then, then we continued with the dive. The rest of the dive was kind of calm. But yeah. <laughs> a strong start. So the action was over in five, ten minutes. And we yeah. were like... We were like panting, like, what are we seeing? Is it is this real? So it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Pritashi, can I ask you, when yeah. you are going to somewhere like the Maldives and, and you're meeting a dive team for the first time and you introduce Tissia, who is 12 years old, but really experienced, do you need to do a bit of education around what she's capable of and her, her dive ability? This is, this is a very interesting question, Helen. So on the boat, uh, first question they ask is, is she going to dive? Many people think that she's a snorkeler. For the surface. Then I said, no, no, she'll dive. Okay, then they'll say she's junior. Then I say that, no, she's junior advanced. And as we sit here, technically, she's more qualified than me. (laughs) I am open water. I can go to 18 meters. She's junior advanced. She can go to 21. So people are really happy and uh, they they congratulate her on uh, her passion. So it's it's a surprise to many on the boat. Oh my goodness. Well, what an inspiration, really. It's good to blow a few minds, I think. Tell us then about what else you saw on that trip and what made the Maldives so special as a memory. So the... Like, by far, my best dive was my 25th dive, which is, like, you know, kind of like a milestone. And we were staying at Fulidu, and next to Fulidu was this island called Ali Mata. And we went there to dive because it's famous famous for, like, um, this Ali Mata uh, jetty dive. So it's, like, basically what happens is you dive, and it may be, like, eight feet, like, four meters or two meters. You already see, like, bunch of like lots of nurse sharks okay 
So you can dive with them and they're perfectly comfortable with you. They'll come really close to you. And in my okay, in like with me, what happened was two of them bumped into me. What? Yeah, so one on my shoulder and one on my legs. So that was just really cool. Like Did you get scared? No. See, they're not known generally they don't attack. They're not like great white white sharks. They don't have like a record of attacking people. But um so they were really gentle and then you know the dive um the people in the diving center, you know, they told us that, like, briefed us, like, do not touch the shark because then they'll maybe come and attack you or you'll scare them away mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then there was this one occasion which is, like, really memorable, uh, memorable for me was um, this, like, maybe, like, a three-meter shark was rubbing its back on the sand. I think it was like having a scratchy back, but like it was rubbing its back on the sand and I came really close to it and it was like really cute and cool. Aww. So it was just... Pritash, are you taking any any camera equipment down there? Are you capturing any of this on yeah, the water? Yeah, yeah. The, the, Using, uh, no, I want to see this in a minute. Yeah, yeah sure. We, we do that. But another thing I would like to add to this dive was we went to about 70 feet. Okay, we, we, of course, you descend shallow and you descend slow, but we, we went to about 70 feet and this was mine and Thysia's, uh, my, I have dived in currents, but this was the, these were the fierce, fiercest currents I have dived in. And for her, it was also the first experience to dive with currents. I am told that these so-called fierce currents were actually moderate. By <laughs> Don't shatter the illusion. And we had to hook ourselves to the reef. Wow. Yeah. What's yeah. that like? Yeah, so there's the, so before we went in they told us they gave us the briefing like which way the current is going, which way we'll enter. So then they give us these hook sort of contraptions which you have to connect to your um BCD um which like you know it's like kind of like a life jacket. So uh but you can control the air in it. So basically you hook it on and there's this like wire and it's to another hook, right? So what you do is when you're in like a lot of current, you're supposed to um, put it onto a piece of rock and not like coral because you're going to damage the coral. Mm-hmm. So you put it on a piece of like rock and you hook it and you inflate your BCD and you just relax like you relax. The current will be going, but the hook will hold you in place, in place and you'll just be relaxing and watching. So in this one scenario in the same dive, we saw this... Um, we saw these bed like this maybe like a family of sharks like probably seven sharks in just lying down and sleeping and they were basically um we just hooked up and we were just watching them it was like a shark show i was yeah, about to say it exactly. sounds like you're in shark week just yes. chilling out just watching all under the waves yeah I love hearing your enthusiasm for this this year. And I really Thank hope you. any kids listening today are like, I want to do that. I want to live that. Can I ask, maybe I'll ask Dad first, where's next on the travel agenda? Where are you guys eyeing up for the next adventure? So I have two plans, short term and long term. Go on. Yeah, short term is nearby, Akaba, which I have dived in October. But I want to take this year because of the, because Red Sea is very different. And it's visibility, again, 25, 30 meters, but small marine life, smaller fishes, but nevertheless, very pretty. Colors are amazing. That's nearby. We can do it on a weekend. And slightly medium term would be Raja Ampat in Indonesia. What's that? So Raja Ampat is is is, is a very remote place uh, in Indonesia, one of the islands of Indonesia. You have to take a couple of flights to reach there. But it has a remarkable amount of biodiversity. 
so people say that in in one dive you get to see hundreds of species of fishes hundreds wow so not like hundred fishes like yeah. species, species. Different. Yeah, yeah different yeah wow and what about you Susie? can I ask for anyone who's listening today who might have a kid kind of I guess age eight up we were just talking off air my daughter's about to turn eight and she is such a water baby she'd love to do her bubbles um what what do you get out of diving to see? Why do you think other kids would enjoy exploring under the waves too? Uh, first of all, if you really, really like exploring and, you know, going on adventures in different countries, then diving is for you because it's just, it's like another level. It's completely different from exploring in land. It's just you you it's like such a nice experience like mm-hmm. you go to a place that nobody else is able to go and you can experience things and like see so many fishes which you wouldn't be able to see on land so it's basically a safari but underwater and it's really nice so i just i enjoy it and if you really love water like really love you know swimming then go for go for the um go for diving and if you are unsure about it, I suggest just go for a try dive. See how you feel in the water, and then you know. I, I'm pretty sure you'll you, you'll go and do the you know the love that. course. My underwater ins- safari. So my my instructor. I did my open water. I got my open water license in Vietnam. So we were living in Vietnam before we came here. So the feeling after the fourth dive, my instructor. He was a British national. I remember his name, Matt. So when I finished my fourth dive and we surfaced. We are in the water, but we have surfaced, and he congratulated me in water. He said, Priyadarshi, congratulations. That was a wonderful feeling. I said, I've got my license. Yeah, same thing. Similar thing <laughs> happened to me. Um, the, my instructor who was in um, Fujera, he's like, I was doing with another buddy, who, um, like who, she was a 12-year-old girl, and she also got her license, and... He was like, congratulations, you've completed the license. And we're just all cheering. Oh, and that's so. the thing. There's always going to be another country to go to, another milestone, another yeah. another accomplishments. And, you know, and, just incredible. And with diving, you meet so many, like, great people. For example, in my Ali Mata dive, I met this lady from the U.S. She went to Raja Ampat and she was just sharing all of her stories with me. 60-year-old. Good for her. Yeah. Good for her. She got her license when she was 50, and I think she's done 150 dives already. Wow. See, guys, never too young. Yes. Never too old. To see it. Thank you so much for being with us. Pridashi, wonderful to hear your passion. So, uh, so, I mean, next generation. She's already more qualified than you, so what's <laughs> yeah. next? Well, keep us informed of the travels. Can't wait to have a quick look at your photos. Absolute Thank pleasure. You. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us this afternoon is Dr. Francesca. She graduated from the University of Parma in Italy. She's got interest in surgery, emergency critical care. Um, and her, your father and your grandfather were also vets and your brother as well. Yes, yeah. We come from a really close veterinary family, yeah. Did they not put you off? No, actually, my father was absolutely against for me, to me to go to the university, to the veterinary medicine. It was like, please, Francesca, be a doctor. It's going to be better. I promise you. Why? And I was like, no, the stubbornness of being Italian. I was like, no, I want to be a vet. And uh, Amasami can be really challenging. Why is that? Tell us, tell us about uh, some of, maybe not the surprises, because I'm sure you saw your father and your grandfather, but perhaps what you hadn't expected. Well, uh, some t- obviously they don't talk. So 
first of all, you need to literally be really good at the physical examination. Mm -hmm. The problem is sometimes at the clients, they can be quite challenging. And so it's not just animal management, no, it's I'm human afraid. management. I, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid it's more human managing the, 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 my patient. My patient oh. is the best. Okay, here's a question <laughs> that might get me in trouble. Who's more difficult as a pet parent, a doggy parent or a cat parent? I would probably say a doggy one. <gasps> I'm shocked. I thought I was really easygoing. I thought no. the cats... Are, why? No. Because, I mean, you know, cats... The dog cats, literally, they can disappear for days. And cli- I mean, the clients are fine with, with that. They know that, I mean, they're just wandering around and they come back at some point. Obviously, dogs, they live inside the house, so they are all the time observed by the clients. And like, some clients, they can be quite paranoid. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's actually that when you think about we probably assign more personality to dogs yeah. in yeah. terms of that closeness of relationship, and we maybe humanise a lot of their and the qualities and and, and behaviours. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we've got lots of weird habits coming in on the text line. Um, lots of questions as well as as well, Dr. Francesca. But um, before we get to the text line, um, I'd love to talk, I guess, about some resolutions for us pet parents to make sure our beloveds are healthy and happy in 2023. And I guess just general prevention tips. So we don't need to be coming into the vets as, as much as we might if we don't stay on top of these things. Well, I would say at least one every six months or if you can't every one and six months, clearly come for the vaccination, yearly vaccination, because here, especially in Dubai, it's mandatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, have a lovely chat with your vet because we have few medications they should be taken depending obviously of the lifestyle of the dogs or the cats as well if they're outdoor cats outdoor cats absolutely you need to be on top of the deworming tablet and ticks and flea tablets and if there are an outdoor dog a lovely labrador <laughs> scavenger and he oh, loves yeah. eating everything from the ground what do you need to do you make sure religiously i always say religiously put in your calendar every three months even less than three months every two months and a half Deworming tablet, 100%. What happens if you don't? What? Uh-huh. Mm. You have a lovely surprise, such a diarrhea at home. And <laughs> Get I promise you, nope, you don't want this. Okay. So, yeah. And what about diet as well, whether that is supplementation or changing diet according to any medical conditions, you know, renal or yeah. I don't know, weight loss? I don't know. 100%. So clearly, obviously, you need to come to the vet. Secondly, you, don't, you can't get prescription diet at at any shop you need to go to the vet first and also please never change diet without a vet consultation obviously uh, secondly um, make sure obviously that especially if the dog need to lose weight like a visit like a free of charge visit at the vet just put on the scale check the weight have this, a little pat down yeah exactly check 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 with the nurse available and just make sure the weight is literally record so you can easily see as well if you lose weight so staying on top of these things because yeah. it's like us or it's like our partners we don't see these little weight changes until six months you get on the scale and go oh wow Okay, Dr. Francesca with us this afternoon. Um, We are taking your messages on the weird habits your animals have. Let us know, 4001. We're on Facebook Live. You can get in touch on the SMS, of course, and the ARN Play app and the WhatsApp too. And I love the photos. Um, Message here saying, it's from Tash saying, my girl Pitten goes mad on mirrors. 
She loves hysterically squeaking her paws on foggy mirrors. She does this on windows and seems to enjoy the noise and yells at herself for good measure. Bit of mental stimulation there. Me has got a cat called Poe obsessed with wool. He's transfixed by any type, from knitting yarn to a woolen blanket. He'll lick it until I take it away from him. Hilariously bizarre, but also a little bit icky. Um, and Taz saying, weird habit is more of a gross one. Our lab mix is a poo eater. Right. Oh, dear. When is that cause for concern, though, genuinely? Well, obviously, poo is full of... Waste and rubbish, yeah. Yeah, yep. exactly, bacteria. And um, so... Sometimes it could be a condition, actually, and you need to, uh, again, check check with the vet because you might going to ask to do a few tests. S- secondly, it's important to deworm them, obviously. And um, thirdly, you can try, if it's, it is on pool, try pineapple. What? I know. So really weird, but literally make the poop, the on poop, quite t- smelly. So clear, they cannot, I mean, they're not going to be able, to, they don't like eating their own poo if it smells pineapple. Pineapple chunk, pineapple juice. Obviously, if it's, your dog is obese, <laughs> careful with the juice. But, um, yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know how this was discovered, but <laughs> worth a try I, there, I, Taz, worth I a try. I didn't try myself, <laughs> so I don't know. Nara has sent a gorgeous photo of Chewy sitting up in the car like a, like a good little co-pilot. And we've had so many questions and messages as well, as I said, Dr. Francesca with us to help us with those between now and five o'clock. Here's Rog talking about his pup, Lily. My dog, Lily, she doesn't chew fabric, but she kind of polishes the front of her teeth with them so she sort of like will turn around and she'll be on the sofa or on her bed or even i've seen her do it with the carpet she like like forces her front top lip uh, and bottom lip apart and then just like like looks like she's gnawing away at the fabric but she's actually just polishing the front of her teeth very weird but she is a very weird dog that's the first of many weird habits Weiwei is saying, my cat Maya loves meowing for food at a certain time every evening. And after we put the food in the bowl, she just looks at it and walks away. Every time she eats only a few pieces of a dry food keeps coming back. What a weirdo. Let me know yours. Dr. Francesca, I've got a question here from G. She's got a gorgeous little puppy called Maggie, bulldog. I think it's about six months old, saying we think Maggie might be deaf or have hearing impairment. How can we check for this? How does that work in clinic? Well, it's not really, really, really easy to check for uh, the, the for hearing problems. Uh, back in UK, they, at the, the University of Cambridge, they literally put electrode on the back of the ears to check for um, for, for the hearing test. But it's really not easy test. That also is quite expensive, and obviously they do at the University of Cambridge. Here in Dubai, I'm quite sure that they no one do does do the kind of test. Obviously, there are specific tests, like reflex tests we can do in a really quiet room without stimuli and see. Um, from the medical point of view, we check for any possible ear infection, any abnormality of the ear canal and everything else. Obviously, if it's the client actually is willing to consider an investigation, even a po- possible MRI can be considered. But again, unfortunately, it's not a cheap 
cheap, cheap diagnosis. So definitely worth checking out some of the medical options there. Yeah. I mean, is it a bit like, so we've got, a, we've got a family friend and they're sure that their son doesn't know his name because <laughs> he never answers it. <laughs> like, do you think you've got a different name because we're shouting it and you're not responding? And I guess if it's, if it's a puppy as well, could, could there be a behavioural thing in terms of recall, listening, interaction and attention? Yeah, I mean, if it's the fair, the fair literally rule out any possible hearing issue, definitely, I mean, consider to have a chat with the behaviorist and uh, probably get some get some tips from him or from her, obviously, and uh, see if it can be adjusted. All right. We've got a question from Patrick. It's not pets and vets unless there's some poo involved. And um, Patrick's saying, from the smell of things, it appears my pet, dog, is experienced a great deal of gas and bloating. What can I do to help us both? So, Patrick, it makes me feel any better. Our dog Jarvis is a nighttime trumper. Come nine o'clock, he clears the sofa. It's absolutely horrendous. And he looks at us with this kind of raised eyebrow as if to say, I'm just as entitled to be on the sofa as you. Well, when is it cause for concern? Well, obviously, lots of gas in the tummy could be some imbalance of the flora bacteria. So... Have you changed the diet recently? Has it been heavy? Any signs of diarrhea recently? Um, have you been to the vet recently for any possible endoparasite treatment, such mm-hmm. as deworming tablets? So you should, again, have a chat with your vet and discuss if it can be a condition that can be treated or just, I mean, food digestion. Are some dogs just a bit windy? Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, we had one incident where we heard Jarvis, who's a, Cocker Spaniel, he's about nine and a half now. And it sounded like he was screaming. I've never heard a sound like it. We were straight to the vets. They kept him in that day, examining him. Guess what it was? Yeah. Wind. That was the most expensive wind you can imagine. Let's go to the text line. Um, We've got a question here. Um, This is from Leo saying, how often should I give my pet a bath? Dog spends a lot of time outside playing and jogging with me. That's about five times a week. Yeah, I would probably say four, every four weeks, every six weeks. Not too much, obviously, because you want to make sure the skin is produced, the oil from the sebaceous gland that protects actually the skin against the aller- environmental allergy. So I would say four to six weeks. Obviously, if it gets too, too dirty, you can use wipes. Or if, uh, if, it's too, if you need to clean it all the time, probably use even dry shampoo. Really? Yeah, dry shampoo is actually really good when a puppy and you shouldn't bath them before the full vaccination course finished. So I always suggest dry shampoo. Okay, we took our dogs for a seriously muddy walk at the weekend. They were up to their necks in marshes and water and muck. So they got a bath over the weekend. I'll just give it about a month. And a question here saying, can I give a shower with baby products to my dog? Saying my son is allergic to the dog's products. Well, I would not suggest use human, human shampoo anyway. I know that for, for kids, they're a little bit more sensitive, so they're more gentle and everything, but um, you never know if it's the dog who might going to develop an allergy against this shampoo, so I would not suggest it. Thank you very much for that. Right, let's go to the text line, 4001. Leah saying, hi both. My dog injured his tail. It bled. He bit it, damaged it. Long story short, the vet had to amputate. This was last September. It healed fine. Vet's happy. But our dog, Dashan Cross, has been very growly ever since when everyone, anyone goes near his little tail. Bless him, I Aww. think. It's 
feel like it's been traumatized by the whole experience, mm-hmm. poor thing. I feel like it might need a little bit more time to literally digest the whole trauma he's been through. Um, obviously, the vet in charge, you need to make sure that the, 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 the remain part of the telly doesn't never get infected because, you know, that sounds sometimes they can be quite crazy. They can wig the telly really, really quite energetic way and they can develop a micro, micro trauma and the vet always need to make sure there is not... Uh, Poor little, new wound. Poor little thing. Okay, yeah. hope that helps. Uh, Danilo's been interesting. I've got a three-year-old Pomeranian called Cloud. Very healthy fur. Unfortunately, I used a different shampoo one day and it made all the ugly difference. And he seemed to be having alopecia. The once beautiful hair was replaced with bald spots. A friend recommended Dermaction Duo. Itchy dog shampoo and spray. Use it for around a week and now Cloud is looking back to normal, which makes me think this product is herbal. Can it be used by humans? (laughs) I would not. I would not recommend it. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Maybe a trip in Turkey will probably. (laughs) Oh my goodness. A Pomeranian with alopecia. Poor little soul. Um, So. I mean, great! It's worked for Cloud, but no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't to any bald um, <laughs> gentleman out there. Don't no. don't be rub, don't be rubbing this on. Um, coming back to your weird habits that your that your pets have, Matt's uh, <laughs> Matt's dog has a hatred of plants that included Christmas trees that must be weed on. Ouch. Digs holes in the garden so often. I thought we had a colony of moles. Um, I also had a message here from Yasmin saying our cat is a sock thief. Preferably our sons revolting can stand up all by themselves gym socks. Nice. And a question from Vanna saying, my dog Ridge loves being outdoors, but most of the time I see him eating grass. Plants seem healthy. Not sure if it's dangerous for him. What do we need to know? Great Mm. question. Well, obviously, if you need to let him be out of lead, just just look at what he's doing at least. Um, you never know what kind of plants are out there. So some of them can be obviously poison. Poison. So I will be a little bit careful. Um, the good thing, obviously, if is um, if it does an affect the tummy. Normally, I mean, if you're quite healthy, they vomit literally. They well, that's what I always heard. The dogs eating yeah. grass are trying to make themselves sick. Exactly. So if they don't get sick, get sick, sick, sick themselves sick, sorry, and uh, they get develop some lethargy and everything else. So again, go to the vet and have a chat with them, probably a blood test to check if there is any toxicity. Okay. Let's talk puppies. Donji's been in touch saying, our rescue puppy is very playful, but sometimes his bite can hurt. Yeah. Naughty. How can I stop this? Stop him from doing this? I mean, it's puppy behaviour, you know. It is, yeah. But it can really hurt those little needle teeth and no yeah. joke. Yeah. What can you do to discourage it or okay. kind of have the play, yeah. but not the pain? And it, you have to think as well, uh, puppy before six months old, they are thieving as well. So probably they need something that they need to massage the gums. So I suggest hard toys, but not too hard because you don't want to literally traumatise the, the small baby teeth. Uh, so plenty of toys and obviously try to enforce, I mean, try to tell them off, but not, not try not to be too strict. Yeah. We just tried to replace my, ha- yeah. my hand with, yeah. the, with the toy. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, my hands were in bits yeah. when we had up when, when really Jarvis sharp. really, 
really, mm. really sharp. Um, and a great question here from Vina saying, hi, both. Thanks for this. Love the show. I'd love to take my, my dog in the car with me, but how can I get her used to these outings? She cries now. Oh, bless oh no. And it's, it's, a, it's like when you have a baby who hates being in the car and you've got, you've got pet parents or parents who go, oh, my baby falls asleep. And you're going, well, five <laughs> minutes in the car to the supermarket is torture because mine screams her head off. And, it, and it's actually, it's very stressful for the driver to it be, is, to, yeah. to have the noise in the car, yeah. whether it is baby or, you know, fur baby. <laughs> um, so for Vina and anyone else that would, would, you know, maybe has a journey coming up or just wants to have a less stressful time in the car yeah. with a dog in particular, is there anything you can do? First of all, try to do a small trip first because you don't know how the dog will react. Sometimes I'm afraid that they got... Sick motion sickness. I mean, they, get, oh, they okay. vomit. Uh, clearly, you don't want this kind of surprise in your car, especially if it's a brand new car. So I suggest a small trip, like a 10-minute trip, f- five-minute trip, f- 10-minute trip. Try to then increase and see if they actually get sick. My concern is more getting sick than mm-hmm. distress. There is uh, some spray you can get from the pet shop or from the vets. They can literally fur hormone spray to calm them down. So you can literally spray the environment in the car but again, check for any sickness. A, a tricky question to end on today, but I'm, I'm, I think Tina does need a bit of help. Saying, hi both, my mum turned up to my house over the holidays with a rescue puppy. I never asked for one. It was a gift to the children. The puppy is absolutely adorable, but hard work that I'm not mentally or physically prepared for. I've got a toddler with additional needs. She doesn't seem to like other people and making having a puppy has made life really, really hard. I'm so upset with the whole situation, feeling really overwhelmed. Um, please advise. Such I mean, a tough. It's such a tough one. And to be honest with you, we're seeing so many stories out of the UK right now about puppy regret. People that have got dogs during COVID and life's gone back to normal, back in the office, et cetera, et cetera, and have been left with an animal that yeah I mean the finance you haven't even mentioned there but a lot of people financially unprepared haven't got the time to dedicate to it this is why and I'm not aiming this at you Tina of course this is why doing your research and understanding what is involved in being you know a pet owner is just so so crucial to not underestimate it Um, in terms of T- as, you know, helping Tina here. I, I mean, I, t- I don't know what to suggest, I and I very rarely say that. To be I honest, I mean, you have to think that having a puppy or having a rescue dog is like you have to think there is an addition member of the family, um, and especially if you have already a kids with, uh, yeah, some additional needs. Additional needs. I'm really worried that I mean, I'm not saying you can re- neglect the dog, but even the dog needs. Oh, no, time. I mean, I had a, I had a puppy, a six-month-old puppy and a five-month-old baby at the same time. And my mum was like, it's Helen, you are insane. Yeah. Like, what were you thinking? But it was a rescue and, you know, it, we made that decision and it's, you know, it's worked out, but it, it wasn't easy. Um, maybe contact a couple of the rescue centres yeah. and just and just see if there's any scope to take a I mean, I would say, you know, if it's a puppy puppy, then the, the probably the likelihood of it getting adopted yeah. is far, Much far else. greater than, than an older dog. And Tina, if you want to message me on 4001, I've got some contacts with people that might be able to help you out. But thank you for reaching out. And please, please, please don't feel any guilt for having having these feelings because it is a, it's a big, big commitment um, for anybody, especially someone who's had an animal put upon them without asking for it. Um, and then when you've got, you've got a lot going on at home. So drop me, drop me a message. Um, no name on this message. Um, Francesca saying, my cat is a tomato lover. <laughs> Whenever a salad is being prepared, he's the first to join the feast. Is it harmful for him? Uh, 
<laughs> the kind of, it's really weird to be fair. And <laughs> secondly, I'm a little bit probably worried for the seed on the, mm. in the tomato. So if you can remove the seed, just give the pulp. Okay, small small pieces. It shouldn't be a problem. Okay, all the best. <laughs> Please send a photo of your cat eating a tomato. Uh, Dr. <laughs> Francesca, really appreciate your time today. You can be found at City Vet Clinic there on our Wassel in uh, Jamira Al Manara. Wishing you and all the team there a very very lovely Thank week you. ahead. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.